thank you for, whoa, uh, thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. I care a lot about the church as a whole, the church, Catholic church, Church Universal, uh, and about individual churches. Um, I've been in lots of different churches, and uh, I'm so happy to be uh, hopefully helping the body of Christ through uh, talking to you all about social media today. So uh, I am going to be talking about the blessings and curses of social media. So uh, we will be talking about the curses mostly, but the blessings are first because I want you to think, okay, maybe there is something good here, uh, but we are actually going to be talking about the bad parts of it for quite a bit. Uh, as Josh mentioned, I co-host a podcast called Winning Slowly, which is a podcast about technology, religion, ethics, and art. We have over 100 episodes. I co-host it with a, uh, a fellow Presbyterian who is a, uh, works in technology, and so we approach technological issues from a Christian background. So uh, that's what I do in the ethics of technology space. I also teach at ASU, as Josh said, and I teach people how to use technology, social media professionally. So uh, let's get started talking about how we do technology. Of course, this is like the, the bane of every person who talks about technology. They're like, let's do technology or not. Um, so uh, the first thing I want to say is that unhealthy social media use is not a technology problem. So it's very easy to blame technology for the ills that we see when we look at our phone because it's right there, it's in your hand, it's a phone, it's, it's the problem. It wasn't there 20 years ago and now it is. And so the things that I, I'm gonna be focusing on are that unhealthy social media use is really a human heart problem that is amplified and accelerated by technology. And so the basic problems of social media as they are instantiated in people's lives are really human heart problems. People are anxious. People were anxious before social media. People are concerned about how they're viewed by other people. That's been going on since uh, basically Genesis 2. Um, so there's a lot of what's going on in social media that is actually just human heart problems. And this is great for you because this is what you do all day. You talk to people about human heart problems and you shepherd them through their problems. But there are aspects of technology and specifically of social media that add an extra layer of, of difficulty onto this. And so I, I've pointed out two aspects, amplified and accelerated. And what I mean by amplified is that anyone who's on social media has a much wider audience, on average, than they would usually have had if they were saying the same thing 25 years ago. They have a much wider reach. And there's a lot of historical and technical reasons for that that I can talk about in the Q&A if we want to, but the basic level is that if you're saying something, 25 years ago, if you said something, you might be talking to a bunch of people in a room but now you're talking to uh, an almost theoretically infinite number of people on the internet because anybody can access what you do in various ways. But even when you take out the almost infinite bits, you're still, I technically have like 1,200 friends on Facebook, and so I'm technically talking to 1,200 people at once every time that I post something, which doesn't make any sense. Like that's not a scale at which the human has usually, especially the private human who's not like a public speaker or author, gets to talk to people. 
So that's the amplification bit, is that people now suddenly have this giant megaphone. And then the acceleration bit is that you can do this much faster. Even if you're an author 25 years ago, it would take a very long time to get from the last period on the end of the book to have it actually be in someone's hands and then have them actually give you feedback. It would take months, years even, for this to happen. Now, people can get feedback on their ideas uh, seconds after they post them, which is extremely different. Um, And so those are the two aspects that we're going to talk about in relation to, uh, to dealing with social media. And so because technology and the human heart work together to cause the problems of social media, they have to be tackled together. So as I'm going to be talking about these issues, I'm going to be talking about not just how do you deal with the technological aspects of it, but how do you deal with the spiritual aspects of it. And so I have a few very lay suggestions for you all, but I'm, I'm going to hopefully tag into some concepts that you're like, oh yeah, we know how to deal with that. So that's my hope here is that I can point you towards some things and then you can take it from here. So the things we're going to talk about is that social media is ubiquitous, noisy, scary, prurient, and sometimes positive. So uh, it's not all uh, despair. So to jump right into it, we're going to start with ubiquitous because this is the, the sort of state of things. It's everywhere, all the time. And so it, it's just part of our culture in a way. And in other ways, it is outside of our culture. And I can talk about that theoretically when we get to the Q&A session. But for the purposes of this particular problem, people who are dealing with unhealthy social media use either have, on, on a moderate end of the scale, just distraction from, from offline life. Uh, I can say that this is a problem for me. It's probably a problem for any of you that have social media, is that there's just always this little thing of like, you could go check how your Twitter tweet is doing, or did you get a Facebook response yet? And so there's always this little bit of distraction that you need to be uh, addressing, or, or sometimes we don't address. However, there's also extreme ends of things where uh, severe online uh, or offline, severe offline life disruption can happen. And this is when people are staying up all night, they're shirking responsibilities, they're losing their friends, they're doing things and having uh, sorts of relationships with social media that are causing their um, offline life, their walking around life, as we sometimes call it, to suffer in sometimes dramatic and terrible ways. And so uh, one of the ways that we can deal with this type of problem uh, where people are, are struggling with just the sheer amount of time they're spending and the sheer amount of uh, weight, uh, mental and emotional and spiritual weight is on them, is to make the familiar strange. And what I mean by that is there's this level at which people don't think about their social media use. They don't think about, how often do I go on social media? Or is this a healthy thing that I'm about to post? There's not a whole lot of this metacognitive thinking going on because in a lot of ways, people just use social media the way they would use anything else in their social life. Like they talk to people and people don't often uh, think, well, I, I wish that people did do this more often, but um, people don't often think before they say something like, is this a healthy and edifying thing to say? Um, and I, was, I was just thinking that, you know, maybe I should do that more often when I'm talking, but um, 
there's, there's this level of metacognitiveness that needs to be addressed when we're talking about this problem. So if someone is having troubled social media use, they're using it too much and, they, and they're starting to experience negative effects, but they don't know why, you have to get them to think about what they're doing. How are they doing this? Why are they doing it? And uh, one of the ways you can do that is a technical way. You can do something almost exactly like the introductory question, which is talk to someone and be like, okay, let's pull up your social media and like, look at the last few posts. Like, how does this post make you feel? And people may not know what to say to that. Like, I don't know. It doesn't make me feel anything. It's social media. It's just how this works. But as you start to talk to people about their own posts or about other people's posts, you can get them to try to think about what's going on in their hearts. Um, and once you can get them to recognize social media for being a thing and not just part of how they conduct their lives, then you can start to have conversations about uh, the right ordering of the heart. Like, what are your desires? Like, what are the ways that you relate to social media and relate to people? And then that's where you can start to have conversations about uh, relationships with with God and with other people and how sometimes spending lots of time on social media is indicative of having troubles in those other sorts of relationships with people and with God. And so it can be an angle that instead of just talking about like, well, you need to quit social media, um, transitioning that into what is your relationship with social media and how can we use that to think about what's going on in your heart? Because the human heart is the driver of of communication and of social action. Um, it's where we um, get our words out of the excess of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so uh, thinking about our relationship to social media and how that relates to not just social media itself, but what it tells us about what's happening in the human heart, that's really valuable for this particular problem. So the next problem is that social media is noisy. And what I mean by this is that anybody can talk on social media. Anybody has that megaphone that I was talking about. And so thinking about this, there are some problems where, you know, if uh, you are on social media, you might have seen some people gossiping, maybe. Um, idle talk, hurtful words. Uh, you may have seen some of these this morning on the way while you were looking at social media. I mean, this is part of what social media looks like. And that's, uh, again, as I indicted myself earlier, this is a thing that, that happens to me. Like, I can devolve into gossip and idle talk. And so there's, there's the moderate form of this problem. And then the extreme form of this problem is uh, severe narcissism and alienating people in your online and offline lives. And so uh, we think a lot more about the people who are severely... Uh, unhealthy in the ways that they relate to social media, and I'll let you ponder that on your own. But the ways that we think about and talk about uh, the noise on social media are, are really important. And so the ways that you talk to someone who is having a problem with saying unhelpful or, or hurtful things on social media is correction. You have to be able to talk to them and say, hey, you know what? this is not a thing you should say on social media. In the same way that you would go to someone gossiping and say, hey, this is unhealthy. You shouldn't be gossiping. Like, and, and that's an uncomfortable conversation because you just have to straight out and say it like, this is not good. Um, but that's really what you have to do in this sort of situation. There's no kind of getting around that the solution to this problem is saying like, this is unhealthy, you need to stop or we need to change what you're doing, or we need to approach what you're doing. And 
So that comes obviously out of the human heart of, of gossip and idle talk and all these things from, from James and, and elsewhere in the Bible where it says, be careful with your words. And so that's the sort of thing that you can then transition into is talk about the impact of words and the impact of, of how we talk to other people and how we relate to other people um, in, in speech, but also in digital format. And so that's sort of the, where I tag you all in on that one in that you have probably a lot of experience talking with people who, who need this sort of correction. And, uh, and that's where I would suggest one of the ways you can deal with this is to go there. We'll also talk about how social media can be scary. So we're kind of going down the ladder into the harder and harder topics. And so scary. Uh, social media can be very scary. Uh, people can be afraid because of social media. And this is particularly because of a technical aspect where information that's happening anywhere in the world can now be fed into your phone instantaneously. So if there's a shooting in Norway, you can be afraid about that here in Arizona. 25 years ago, you may have had to have a subscription to a physical copy of the New York Times and dig through to the international section before you could even find out that that thing had happened. But now that you have it on your phone, you can be afraid of that and what that means for your life and for your family. And so one of the things that can happen is the moderate form of this is fear of, of things in specific contexts. So being afraid of going to a particular place or particular people or particular uh, situations or particular conversations, just fear of specific things. But the extreme form is extreme generalized anxiety, just being anxious about everything all the time to the level that it requires uh, potentially treatment or addressing in a medical or extremely uh, detailed sort of spiritual way. So that's the level at which things can go very, very wrong is when people start to be totally afraid of things that don't really matter to them. And what I mean by don't really matter to them is that the context for where they're getting this fear is so far outside of their actual local context of their life that they're basically scaring themselves for no reason. Because a shooting in Norway does not have any relationship whatsoever to your life here in Arizona unless you have lived in Norway or know someone in Norway or have uh, people who you know are in Norway. But if you don't have any of those relationships to it, there's no reason for you to be afraid of this. And so one of the ways that you can address this is to give that sort of context and to say, okay, what is it that you're really afraid of here? Are you really afraid of a shooting in Norway and what that means for you here? Uh, and so thinking about the context, thinking about the local context and the specific aspects of people's lives and getting them to think about what does it mean to be here, physically here, is, is what you need to, to start to get at when people are having these sorts of fears. Like, what is it that you're afraid of? Now, if it's a fear that's in your local context, if it's something that is immediate and fearful to you right now, if it's a bullying situation or if it's someone you know has been hurt, like that's a real and important thing. And that is a fear response that is adequate and justified. And so I'm not suggesting minimizing all fear because some fear is real and is, is part of how we should respond to the world. We should be able to say, okay, this is something we need to worry about, we need to take care of, we need to respond because, and fear tells us when to do that. But putting some context on that is super important. 
And then once you have some context on it, you can start to think about what it means to be an embodied person. And you can start to, to talk about the theology of being in the body and being where you are and being who you are and what that means for your relationship to other people and to your community and to the world. Because we do have responsibilities to the world, but sometimes they're not as intense and as directly immediate in your phone as people feel that they are. And so uh, and a, a sense of, of context, not just of your local space, but also of how you should rightly be in the world, like an embodied nature of the world, is important when talking about that. So finally, we're down to the very lowest rung of what I see as, as very, very scary and difficult problems with social media, and that's uh, that social media is prurient which is not a word we use very much unless you're reading the Puritans, but um, it, it means, to me, the definition I'm particularly interested in is the restless desires, the creation of a restless desire. Um, it's also related to lust, uh, sexual lust primarily, but just lusts in general and restless desires. And that's what the worst cases of social media unhealthy use look like. It's just endless, restless desire for something unknowable even, just anxiety and desire in general. And so the symptoms of this can be interest in unhealthy behaviors, so that's the moderate end when that's sort of like looking at a car crash and not looking away, that's sort of unhealthy to do, but that's sort of a human condition, we just want to look that way. Social media unfortunately enables that, but also the, the far end is the primary thing that people think about when they think of social media problems, which is self-harm, bullying, pornography, suicide, these sorts of very, very difficult and very, very dark problems. Uh, and those are real, those exist. This, it's not fear-mongering to say that these are very real problems that come of social media. They are extreme and they are not as common as we would think they are based on the media coverage they get, but they are real and you may deal with them. And so the solution here, one of the solutions, there are many solutions to all problems, is limits. And this is the only one so far where you're going to hear me say, like, sometimes you have to quit social media. Like, if you have a problem where you have uh, situations where people cannot handle the, the content of social media in a healthy way, where they have gone over a certain edge, where they are... Uh, potentially out of control, they don't feel like they have any sense of how to operate in the world, uh, whether that's through becoming extremely depressed or self-harming or things of this, this variety, things that are, uh, you know, are sort of uncomfortable for me to talk about because I'm not a clinician or anything like this. But um, there are cases that are very, very dangerous, and so there are limits that need to be put on this sort of thing. Um, you need to limit exposure to various types of content, which can be done, or limit exposure to social media platforms or all social media, but you need to be able to impose some limits so that there's a, there's a sense that people who are not able to do this sort of thing for themselves can have someone step in, an authority figure, a parent, a pastor, or something, and say, okay, we need to impose some limits here. And then once you impose limits, Technologically, spiritually, you can start to talk about the nature of human limits and that we are not intended to be infinite. We are not intended to be stretched this far that social media can stretch you. And so 
trying to bring people back into this idea of what is your right focus towards God and the world, similar to the context one, but specifically thinking about what is it that you can't and, and shouldn't do? Um, what are the ways that we should talk about, like, maybe you shouldn't be able to know everything that goes on all over the world in the specific context, in the specific topic. Maybe that's unhealthy for you. Maybe that's not good. Um, so that's the sort of limits that are necessary sometimes. Um, and then uh, there are some healthy things as well about social media. Um, <laughs> they're good. Uh, so they can allow encouragement. So if you have a healthy community that you're interacting with on social media, they can encourage each other. That's great. Send each other messages. Post on each other's walls. Like, tell each other the gospel. Like, this is what the community of life does, the community of the church does in, uh, in real life. So let's do it online. That's possible. Uh, also provides diversity of opinion. So in places that are good, healthy conversations in community, uh, you'll find diversity of opinion, and you can find that online as well. Now, there's also unhealthy diversity of opinion, and there's also unhealthy ways to interact with that, but at its best, you can find diversity of opinion. That's a good thing. Um, you can maintain connections with people. I know this sounds like parroting Facebook's line, but it, it is a thing. You can keep up with people that you're not physically located with, and that can be healthy, especially if they're mentors or if they're uh, people that are important in your spiritual life, and you can keep up with them. Um, and these last three are related, develop self-control, foster wisdom, and reflect character. And that goes back to some of the self-awareness that I was talking about at the very beginning of the presentation, which is there's a sense at which how we handle this in the moderate form is we have to be more aware of how we're using social media. And so if we start to think reflexively and, and address the ways that we use social media, then we're also developing self-control. We're fostering wisdom. We know when to talk and when to not talk. And then we're also reflecting our character. And then we say, oh, self, you wanted to do this very bad thing on social media. That's bad. Let's think about what's going on in my heart, that that is the thing I want to do. And so there's a lot of ways that all of the negative things we just talked about are the flip side of the coin that we can use those things to build our spiritual life and our character and, and the ways that we relate to God and people. And so the, the negative things are bad. They're very bad. But the positives can be very good if we use them in healthy ways. So finally, there's nothing new under the sun. And social media is... is there's nothing new. It's people interacting with each other poorly. People interacting with each other poorly has gone on since basically Genesis 3. And so that's the, the underlying tension here is that people are interacting poorly. And there's a whole layer of technology on top of it that make it so it's like people are interacting from all over the globe in real time, and that's new. Uh, we haven't had that sort of reach since the Tower of Babel. Like, so it's, it's very odd, but at its core... It's people with their heart issues interacting poorly with other people. And at their best, they're trying to get better and they want to grow. And at their worst, they don't know that they're going astray and they need help to be pointed in the right direction. And that's what you all do. So I'm happy to take questions. Before we do questions, um, thank you so much for that. Would you join me in thanking Stephen? We're going we're gonna to have a time of Q&A in about 12 to 15 minutes, but before we do that, take a moment to, let's unpack some of what Stephen just presented around our tables. You guys have a handout, and there's a number of questions on here. I don't know if you'll be able to get to all of them. The number is four. 
There are four. Yeah, four <laughs> questions, which eight people per table might be a little challenging. So do your best and thoughtfully unpack this. And then in about 15 or 10 to 15 minutes, we'll come back for a time of Q&A with Stephen. All right? All right. All right, we're going to move to a time of Q&A with Stephen. And so um, maybe there are some questions from your time around your tables that you'd want to you'd want to ask him directly, or just questions that you came in here with regarding the topic of social media. Um, I'll kind of float around the room with the microphone, um, but I thought, I'll get this kick started, Stephen. Um, can you talk to us about maybe some of the specific positives for certain platforms? I've, I've kind of heard you speak on that before, and I'd love if you could just share some of the specific positives for some of the social media platforms. Yeah, I can definitely do that. So uh, Facebook, has a particular positive aspect that the goal of Facebook is to get you to talk to your family and friends. That's what they've intended from basically 2008 to do. And so the positive of that is if you are talking to your family and friends or looking at what your family and friends are posting, uh, your family and friends almost certainly uh, don't have the same political or spiritual or view on anything that you do. And so in its most positive form, you can see other people's uh, opinions on things um, and see what they're doing and, and how that um, is that you are not the center of the universe. You do not have the only opinion. <laughs> you are, you are in, in a, uh, a whole cloud of opinions. And, and that's healthy. Um, and it can become unhealthy when discussions become unhealthy. Discussions online and offline can become unhealthy. But in general, being able to, to be focused on your family and friends primarily, uh, that, that's positive. Um, when it comes to things like Twitter, uh, Twitter is uh, an accelerant of, of news and of uh, information about the world. And so if you've trained your, your Twitter or your follows or your content selection to healthy things, you can, get, uh, you can get healthy information all the time. You can have uh, pastors and, uh, and lay people giving you um, exhortations to the word and to right living. That's great. Um, you can have that sort of thing coming at you all the time if you want. Um, it requires that you actually think about what you're following and how, what it does to you, but um, it is a way that you could indeed be encouraged all the time if you wanted to. Um, and if you think about things like, like, uh, like Pinterest, uh, which has um, some fairly negative aspects of consumerism, but it also has, uh, it's, a, it's a celebration of good things in the world at, a, at its positive end. It's look at this beautiful thing. Uh, and so we could always use some more celebrating of beautiful things in our lives. That's, that's part of how we, we glorify God is by enjoying his beauty. And so there are... Uh, uh, you know, and there are other minor platforms. Instagram is, is a similar thing at its best. It's look at the glory of, of God and how he's created things. Um, at its worst, it can be uh, very toxic, but at its best, it's, it's a celebration of things that look beautiful and things that are beautiful. And so it, all of that has to do with how your heart is turned towards those individual platforms and what you're looking to get out of it. Um, and what you're looking to do with it. And so uh, you can go into anything, almost anything. You can go into almost anything trying to glorify God. You can go into almost anything trying to glorify yourself. And so uh, there are positive bents towards many of the, uh, the platforms. 
Um, and some of them are uh, fairly neutral, and that LinkedIn is mostly just how you get jobs. So it's, that's a positive thing most of the time. Um, so, uh, so there are some that are less... I mean, you can still use LinkedIn in unhealthy ways, certainly, but it, it's bent is much less towards unhealthy behaviors and more towards uh, a utility. So, yeah. Excellent. Question? Yeah, right here. Hi. One of the um, areas that I'd like to have your opinion on mm -hmm. is the addictive nature mm -hmm. of... Um, social media, mm -hmm. in particular for young adolescents. Mm -hmm. uh, I know that there had been uh, some studies about uh, how um, addictive it is, mm -hmm. especially for young females. Mm -hmm. Have you studied on that? Do you have any opinions on that? Uh, I've read research on that, yeah. And so the symptom is that, yes, social media can become addictive. It can become something that you can't look away from. And so whether that's clinically addictive uh, or just socially addictive or whatever, uh, social media can become something that you can't look away from. And particularly uh, for people, for teenage women and, and some teenage men who are in the midst of identity formation and they're in the, the midst of determining who they are in the world, the, the sense of uh, having everyone else determine who they are in the world via I have to be this way, I have to be that way, is strong. It's very strong. And so there are a lot of, uh, of platforms, Instagram and uh, Facebook to some extent, and um, other uh, platforms like Snapchat and things that get even smaller down the chain, that are uh, per particularly unhealthy towards people who are trying to figure out who they are in the world. Um, they give you more messages about what you should do or what you should be or who you are as opposed to something like Facebook, which is, again, uh, what your family and friends are doing and babies and pictures of uh, going out to the lake this weekend and things like that. Um, so, but uh, do I think that there is such a thing as internet addiction I, or social media addiction? I think that there is definitely a sense in which people can feel compelled to do it. Um, there's actually clinical debate as to whether it is or isn't an addictive thing in the same way that other uh, activities or drugs um, are, but yes, I think it is something that can be uh, compelling to a point that they, it feels like you can't stop. And I think that that's because of the nature of people trying to build their identities and finding how to navigate that social space and seeing this as the only or one of the major ways it happens. Do you have any, um, any, do you have any thoughts on how as uh, pastors and as parents mm -hmm. uh, to basically um, help uh, mm -hmm. through this transition period for the, mm -hmm. for the adolescents? Do you have any, any suggestions? Yeah, so uh, in a lot of ways, it's, uh, you can treat it as... Uh, your kids are running with bad friends. What do you do in that situation? Well, you have to talk about, like, okay, so this may not be good for you. You may not see that it's not good for you, but we're older and in, in authority, and we see that this isn't good for you. So kind of laying out the, the situation, setting the table and saying, we see that this is not good. Um, 
and then pointing out the ways that you see it's not good. Uh, we see you changing the ways that you relate to people. We see you changing the ways that you are uh, talking to us. We see you changing the ways that you're relating to X, Y, and Z. Um, some of those things are the normal process of growing up, but some of them are unhealthy. And if they're unhealthy in ways that are verifiable, that you can see and like point out this time that you did this thing, that's not good, and we think that's because of the ways that you're using social media. Um, this thing that you said where you were talking about social media, that seems bad. Um, so finding examples and pointing out, we're not just making this up, like remember that time you did this thing, or remember uh, you know, a year ago, would you have done this thing that you did just now, back then? Or um, So trying to point out, not just like, we feel like social media might be bad for you, but really to figure and see when you start to see those examples, even if they're small, to point them out and to, like I said, make the familiar strange because they don't see what's going on. Like they don't see themselves in the same ways that parents and pastors and authority figures see them because they have a different lens on their own lives. And so I think that's important is to, to find ways that you can specifically say, I see this thing happening. I saw this event. I saw these words. I heard these words. Um, and then also... You know, there's there's a point in which, um, if if there is sort of uh, unhealthy usage where there's been some acting out or there's been sort of risky behaviors that are talked about online or things like that, then you may have to be a little more authoritative and say, look, this is a risky behavior. This is not healthy. This is not good. Um, we need to talk about why you think this is acceptable. Like, why is this okay? Um, this is not okay. You thought it was okay, clearly. Maybe you didn't think it was okay, but you needed to do this for attention. Um, so um, you can point, if it gets to the point where there's social media posts that are unhealthy or that are dangerous, then you can go to those posts in particular and say, this is not good. Um, and in the way of all teenagers everywhere, they're going to say, like, you're taking over my life, and, like, leave me alone, and um, I did this as a teenager, like, you know, and so, uh, but that's the sort of thing you're going to have to get to, is, like, where are, where's the evidence? Where's the things that are happening? And sometimes you know something's happening long before you can really articulate it, and that's true of any parent everywhere. Um, and so you just have to look for those points where you can inter intervene um, and have those hard conversations. And sometimes that will result in farther down the line saying like, okay, no more social media. But before that, you really want to have those conversations and say, why do you want to do this? Why, how is this okay to you? Like, what, what is okay about this? How are you using this? Um, and to have those hard conversations before it turns into like, okay, sharing nude pictures on Instagram is not okay and no, no social media for you. Like, you want to get there before that happens. That's good. Real quick on that, Stephen, are there any resources that you'd recommend to pastors, church leaders to provide for families that are wanting to navigate that conversation with their kids? Uh, yeah, so Andy Crouch just put out a book, I think in the last year or so, called The TechWise Family, um, and I haven't read it myself yet, but I've heard good things about it. So Andy Crouch, TechWise Family. Um, my wife just read uh, 12 Ways That Your, Your Phone Is Changing You by uh, Tony Brankey, which isn't uh, quite as directed at, uh, at uh, how to handle those situations. But um, 
but that might be another, so those two. Yeah, that was close to one of my concerns, which is sort of beneath the social media use, mm -hmm. and that's uh, reliance on smartphones. And mm -hmm. are, are you at all concerned about some research that suggests there are neurological uh, harms um, associated with juvenile and adolescent smartphone use, starting to see some unhealthy neurological implications of mm -hmm. that kind of dependence. Do, can you say something about that? Yeah, so there, have been, there has been some research about how uh, teens and, uh, and children respond to screens and social media and, uh, and phone usage. And I think that uh, some of the findings are fairly convincing. Um, that there are uh, there are harms. Um, that if you are maximizing the amount of time that you're staring at a screen, you might be uh, changing the way that you perceive the world. Um, I think that if you stare at anything for hours a day, you're going to change how you perceive the world. I mean, that's that's. Uh, so I do think that's true. Um, I think that there are. Uh, th that in the same way that 25 years ago it was uh, how much TV is bad for kids and how much TV is good for kids. Um, it's a similar conversation. Yeah, like, Neil Yeah, Neil Postman. Like, I'm using ourselves to death. And uh, that was, yeah. And so, but I think that it's important to, uh, to it's important to monitor. Um, every child is different for some um, again, like back 25, 30, 40 years ago, some children couldn't watch one TV show without wanting to watch six hours of television, and some people could, some children could watch a show and be like, okay, I'm done, and then go off and do something else. And so I think it has to do a lot with the disposition of the child, the teenager, and, and what their sort of uh, specific bent is towards technology and towards uh, what types of things they want to watch. Um, it's one thing if you want to watch six hours of uh you know, of uh, action movies. It's another if you want to watch six hours of uh, Discovery and figure out how the world works. And so, um, uh, so I think there's there's a lot of oversight that needs to be done um, to determine what that screen usage is, how much screen usage there is, um, because some some parents are going to have a much higher tolerance for that, and some parents are going to be look at their child and say like this would be unhealthy at any level. Like, let's just cut out TV for a week, six weeks, six months, whatever. So I think that there, there are potential harms for overuse um, and that uh, monitoring and, and watching not just the amount of time, which is important, but the content of that time, I think is particularly important. <laughs> I can see it, but don't ask me to do it. <laughs> uh, I can, yeah. I think, it's, I think it depends on, um, on the, uh, the nature of, of what you do with your smartphone, right? So if you're spending all of your time on your smartphone looking at Pinterest and Instagram and uh, looking up the weather, then you know, the utility to you of the smartphone is not high in terms of doing things. Whereas my university requires that if I want to log into anything anywhere, I have to have two-factor authentication, which means I have to open up my phone and say, yes, I am actually a person. So if I actually can't give up my smartphone for Lent because I couldn't do my job, literally. I couldn't even open my email. So there's differences of what it is and what it does for various people in that some people, if you look at your phone and say, this is unhealthy for me, I don't really do anything professional on this, and I don't really see that I'm being 
uh, that I'm glorifying God in any way with this, then yeah, you can give it up for Lent. You can go buy a $10 burner phone and like have that. Yeah, yeah. Or yeah, I mean, you can turn off your Wi-Fi and you can just, um, you know, you can just use it, um, turn off your, your data or give yourself 300 uh, megabytes of data and then suddenly you have a phone that can only text and call. So yeah, I think you can, but I think that um, there are hard issues under it that make it so that that's really useful for some people and for some people it, it doesn't really do what it should do. Excellent. Another question. Yeah, so um, two questions. One is, I think, fast. As a um, social media dummy who may or may not still have a MySpace account. Um, I do too. <laughs> are there any, I think through the lens of redeem, receive, or reject, sounds like many social media platforms would go, hey, there are ways to redeem this. Are there any that you're aware of that you would go, the danger level of this is so high that we ought to flinch towards rejection? Second question then is, as pastors and leaders in ministry, we see things about folks in our congregation that scare us mm -hmm. and things that are concerning. You know, mm -hmm. you talk about one of those uh, things, one of the, what we need to do is move toward, move toward them in correction. And yet, having done that a few times, the pushback I always get is, why are you prying into my personal life? Why are you spying on me? The irony being, it's not really your personal life if you post it on Facebook for yeah. 1,200 people to yeah. see. But yeah. what, what wisdom would you give us to how to enter into those conversations and try to do it in a winsome way yeah. so that people won't just think we're sin-sniffing? Yeah, so <laughs> that's a great word. Um, but So the first question is, Josh, Josh knows this. I think Twitter, you should just reject it. I think that the, the amount of information that you get from so many different sources um, and the sort of negative psychological and technological aspects of Twitter are bent in such a way that it intends to make you afraid and frustrated. Um, because then you go back to get more information to try to stop from being afraid and frustrated, but then you get more afraid and frustrated, and it's a cycle. And so, and, and Twitter is, is sort of, uh, technologic. I would not say that the creators uh, would say this outright because I don't think it's their moral intention, but their social and, their, and technological intentions is for you to keep coming back. And the way that that happens is because people are concerned. Um, you know, Twitter is not a place where most people go for fun. Now, there are people who do and they have communities and that's a thing, but I would say that um, most other properties that I have seen have redeemable aspects. Um, but Twitter is one I would flinch towards rejection. Um, Snapchat is uh, a really complicated platform and really difficult to, um, to use in an edifying way. So I would provisionally say that Snapchat is another one that you would say, like, maybe let's think about how we're actually using this and why. Um, because you can do, I mean, it is a place where you're supposed to do things in private, and that's never good. So I would say Snapchat has some very negative aspects to it as well. But um, I'm not as convinced about Snapchat being irredeemable as I am of Twitter, basically, um, except in a professional context. But as a personal context, Twitter I see as fairly irredeemable. Um, and so secondly, to talk about the interacting with people on, um, on their real lives, about the things they're saying and doing in... Um, in the online space, uh, there, I think there's a couple ways to go about this. Um, one is to, uh, to ask pointed questions about stuff that you now know is going on because of social media. So instead of going to them straight up and being like, I saw this thing on social media, like, what are we going to do about this? 
you now know a whole bunch of stuff about that situation if it's on social media. And so you can go and talk to them and be like, hey, how's your son doing in school with that thing? You know, and like, they can't be like, hey, did you see that on social media? I mean, they can, but socially, no one does that. Like, <laughs> and so, or if they do, they're like, oh, thanks, yeah. Um, but uh, so I would say that's one uh, way to do it winsomely is to, to use the information that you have and, and approach it through that way. Uh, the second way, if people get defensive, is to be, especially if they have uh, children, um, and especially, especially if they have teenagers, to be like, hey, man, like, this is, this is some immature thing you're doing here. It's kind of like what your teenagers do to you, Right? Like, because if you're already in a situation where it's become confrontational, you might as well just go there and be like, hey, you're being a teenager right now. Um, because there's, that's the sort of response they're having. They're getting very defensive. They're, they're bucking against authority. They're, they're saying, no, this is off limits to God and everyone. Like, they're, they're sort of putting up a wall that says, hey, nope, can't go there. And anytime that happens, like, my response is to say, like, okay, well, let's go there then, like, I mean, and so, uh, but that is, that is a far more sort of aggressive tack, right? Like to say like, hey, like, you don't, this is, this is not how you act usually. This is not, this is, should be a warning sign to you. This should be a flag that like, you're suddenly very defensive. Like, so you can sort of call out some of those. I mean, obviously you don't have to say like, you're acting like a teenager right now, but, um, but calling out some of those defensive tactics and saying like, hey, why are you getting so defensive? Like, What's, I mean, I just want to, I care about you. Like, that's the reason you're talking to them. So I think you can call it defensiveness in addition to sort of like asking around the question. Um, and I think also if you put two people into a conversation about social media, then it's, uh, it, it, this, is, this is my hunch and, and presupposition based on what I know about social media and how people interact about it in other contexts is that putting two people together will cause less defensiveness than putting one person together. Um, now, that's totally my guess based on... It's, it's an educated guess based on other information, but that would be one thing I would do as well, is not try to go to one person, but to talk to two people together. So, so he shouldn't try to resurrect his MySpace account? Actually, there are still people that use MySpace professionally very effectively, but that's a whole other story. You had a question, right? Okay. This, this will be the last question for today, you guys. There was a day not long ago that you'd walk into a restaurant, you would see people eating and talking. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, you see them eating and whatever they're doing on their phone. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's scary. And I'm wondering mm -hmm. if social scientists or whoever study this is concerned about the breakdown of just human interaction mm -hmm. in situations like that. So I have not read much research on that specific problem of breakdown of interpersonal interactions because of the phone. I know that there is some research on that. I have a limited amount of knowledge on that. Um, and the, there's sort of two ways that people think about that topic. And one is uh, to, be, to be very concerned about it and to say you should put down your phone. Uh, and in some situations, that is totally the right thing to do. Um, put all your phones away for dinner. Um, put all your phones away for this evening that we're going to spend together. Um, other people, 
other uh, researchers. Again, this is from my limit. This is not an area of my expertise, but this is from my limited reading in the subject. Other people are uh, much less concerned, and they're more concerned about. Uh, what people are doing when they're on their phones. So if people are communicating and interacting with people who aren't physically there, those researchers are saying like, well, they're, they're interacting with people in general. They may have just been staring off into space or staring at their feet or uh, flicking people with uh, you know, newspapers when, uh, like they would have done 25 years ago if you were bored in a conversation and are not paying attention to it. Um, so they tend to take a track that if you're pulling out your phone, it's because the thing that's around you is not engaging. Um, and I'm not super convinced that either of them are right in the extreme. Um, that, um, but I do think that people pull out their phones when they're bored. And so um, should we have a higher threshold for our boredom? I think we should. But I do think that when people are pulling out their phones, it's because they feel like nothing is happening around them. They feel like they aren't engaged or nothing is, is interesting them or, is a, or they're not a part of anything. So I think that there's... Uh, whether that's a symptom or uh, an, a, a root cause, I think that um, there, there, it, it is undeniable that that is the thing that happens if you just walk into any room and see everyone on their phones. But uh, I think there's still not really consensus on what it means um, other than as the previous question of we stare at our phones too much in general. But um, in that specific context, yeah, I'm not sure totally what that means yet. Excellent. Thank you, Stephen, so much. Would you guys join me in thanking him again?